previously on If the Walls Could Talk. There's some people there putting in the hospital that aren't sick that have never been sick. The second floor was the dirty little secret that no one was supposed to talk about. You'd get eight people at one time that would come in. It's like, where are all these people coming from? I thought, this is weird. I have no idea how the FBI got tipped off, but I'm glad they did. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. I had called an ambulance because I was having a panic attack, like I've had for many years and been at Edgewater many times. Tammy Schrader was on her way to Edgewater Hospital's ER. One of the paramedics asked me if I really wanted to go to Edgewater Hospital. And I kind of looked at him and was like, why? Once she got to the ER, Tammy understood why she was asked that question. The doctor came in to look at me, pushed on my stomach, and without doing any examination or anything like that, just told me I needed a hysterectomy. How can you diagnose somebody and tell them they need a hysterectomy without doing any kind of test or anything? That's ludicrous. And I looked at the nurse and she looked at me and I was like, can I find myself out? So if I had listened to this doctor and not had any examinations or any tests, I wouldn't have my son today. It was the last time she ever went there. That last time I was there, everybody just had this I don't care attitude. It just felt like there was a black cloud like hanging over Edgewater Hospital. The hospital had some things that sort of raised flags. Journalist Bruce Japson wrote about Edgewater Hospital for Crane's Modern Healthcare and the Chicago Tribune. I know for a fact in my reporting when I came to Chicago in 1993, and even to this day, that there are a lot of people that said, yeah, that Edgewater Hospital, something's going on up there. Irene Vega took her dad to Edgewater with a toenail infection. They were both shocked when the doctor said his foot needed to be amputated. We were very frightened and didn't want to put him through that. We wanted second opinion, but they were insistent that because of his condition, he might get gangrene, and to avoid that, the foot needed to be amputated. Instead of taking the advice of Edgewater doctors, Irene and her dad walked out. We just got him out of there. Nobody checked, nobody said anything, we just walked out. Her dad got a second opinion. He was able to get treatment. They did a very intricate vein surgery. They saved his foot and actually told us amputation was not the answer. Michelle Saygraves was an Edgewater nurse and still remembers one incident with a surgeon. They were going to do an amputation. And then right after that, they were going to do a bypass leg surgery. That is a no-no. You're supposed to do the bypass surgery first and then the amputation. We discussed that and he went to talk to Mr. Rogan and I got in a lot of trouble. She was later called to Peter Rogan's office. I didn't even sit down. He said, you need to keep your mouth shut and do your job. That was it. I would have never thought anything of it if I hadn't gotten threatened, keep my mouth shut. Because then I put two and two together. I went, wait, they're doing the bypasses after the amputations because they don't care because they're just going to take the leg off in a week. These patients were being tortured, and that haunts me. Christine Joyce was a nurse at Edgewater. And I had a doctor tell me, you got to learn how to make money off these people. It's like, what the hell is wrong with you? 
By the mid-1990s, people called the hospital a butcher shop. I never heard those nicknames, but if it means it wasn't a good hospital, then that's true. Dr. Parag Madani did his residency there. We took care of people just by ourselves because the amount of supervision from some of our attendings was just atrocious and you didn't believe what they told you. You could say that Edgewater put profits before patients. You had this feeling that this doesn't seem right from what you learned from medical school. There were some serious fraudulent things going on on a couple of my floors. Denise King was one of the many Edgewater nurses who watched as the hospital lost its moral compass. I'd always write an incident report. And in fact, I had made copies of all my incident reports and sent them to a relative out of state just in case something happened to me. I kind of felt like, you know, this is so bad, someone might try to cover it up. Denise was shocked by what happened or what didn't happen when she spoke up. A patient came in from a nursing home who had been sexually mutilated. I reported it to risk management. I made a report and risk management said, you have to report this to Roger. And I did. Roger Eman was Edgewater's vice president. And Roger said, I'm not pissing them off. They bring us too much money. And that's when I said, Roger, you need to do what you're supposed to do or I'm going to 257 and 9 tomorrow morning. 257 and 9 are TV stations in Chicago. And then the next day my office locks were changed. But, um, yeah. Nurse managers would say to me, oh, they want to do such and such a surgery on this patient and they don't need that. Kathy Colombo was a nurse at Edgewater. We were all like, what are they doing? Like, what is going on here? When the FBI started to look at Edgewater, the federal government had been tipped off as to where they were getting their patients and the kind of procedures they were doing and the amount of procedures that they were doing. My name is Sherry Kuhn. I was an FBI agent assigned to the investigation at Edgewater. Sherry and the FBI looked into how and why all these senior citizens ended up at Edgewater. They would operate what they termed free health screenings. And then these seniors would be advised that, you know, maybe they had high blood pressure or there were concerns about diabetes. It's what happened after these free screenings that concerned the FBI. They were then further advised that they needed additional follow-up. And this was going to be done at, at Edgewater Hospital. And once they were admitted, these different doctors with different specialties would see these people over the course of a couple of days. She learned that these free screenings were endangering the lives of these seniors. It's okay to offer these free health screenings, but once you take that next step and admit them to the hospital when they don't need to be there, and you start running invasive tests, then you're talking about a possible risk to life because these invasive procedures can be risky. And so I think what was so frustrating to us was was what these people had to go through. Not only were seniors being shipped from faraway public housing in Chicago, but now the FBI learned. There were a number of individuals that were being paid to recruit patients. These patient recruiters were known as salesmen and targeted those suffering from homelessness or drug addiction. One recruiter told the FBI that he passed out flyers that offered treatments to a list of symptoms. When interested people called, they arranged transportation to Edgewater Hospital. 
In exchange for being admitted to Edgewater, these recruiters paid these people with money, candy. And then they started offering them cigarettes. It's just an atrocity. What started as a good thing turned into a nightmare. As the FBI gathered evidence on Edgewater Hospital, it needed someone to be their eyes and ears on the inside. So they enlisted a Chicago area doctor named Monty McClellan. This doctor was already in trouble for accepting kickbacks and improperly admitting hundreds of patients to another Chicago hospital. Dr. McClellan's reputation for bending the rules came in handy when he posed as someone eager to join the scheme at Edgewater. Most importantly, the feds had him wear a recording device. Getting people to wear wires in a hospital broad investigation is unusual. That was something unheard of to Bruce Japson. Maybe that's happened before. It's sort of a mob-like tactic, but I can't recall that going on. And I covered a lot of fraud cases. And just to note that we filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get copies of these tapes, but we're told these tapes were not found. So we recreated these tapes using voice actors reading from transcripts. Dr. McClellan's first assignment was to meet with Edgewater's anesthesiologist named Dr. Rao. The feds learned that Dr. Rao's anesthesia contract with the hospital was, in essence, a way to pay Rao for sending in patients every month, which was illegal. At Rao's meeting with McClellan, I have a handful of healthy patients. McClellan said he had some healthy patients willing to be hospitalized. That's fine, but make sure... Rao said that was fine, but explained that they needed to be coached to ensure they were admitted. Have them complain of chest or stomach pain. If they needed further enticing, Rao suggested paying them or offering them free checkups. And don't worry, the other doctors know how to play the game. Rao then offered McClellan $100 for every patient he admitted to Edgewater. Well, I'm paying the nursing home administrators $100 a month just to talk to their patients. So the deal's $100. This is going to cover the admissions, and you take care of the bill, okay? Mm-hmm. I'll handle instructing the patients. Not only was Dr. Rao unaware that their conversation was being taped, but those patients Dr. McClellan was sending were not real. They were undercover FBI agents who were part of the investigation. The FBI listened as Dr. McClellan spent the better part of 1997 secretly recording conversations with the players in Edgewater's scheme. There were a significant number of recordings made. That's FBI agent Cherry Coon. The tapes involved discussions about this scheme to unnecessarily admit these patients to Edgewater. It helped us identify recruiters who were paid to generate these admissions and doctors who were involved with the scheme. They also learned how these doctors were compensated. Part of this scheme also involved these certain doctors being given contracts for what they termed teaching stipends, as if they were teaching at the hospital. They would receive about 10000 a month for these contracts, and this was in addition to anything that they would bill on their own for seeing patients. The man behind these contracts was Edgewater's vice president, Roger Eman. Roger was involved in drawing up their contracts and getting them to sign these. These contracts may have said they were for teaching or reading EKGs, but their true intent was quite different. These contracts were for the sole purpose of admitting patients. The FBI heard Roger Eman on dozens of these recordings. So the uh, cardiologist you'll be working with is Andy Cabrillo. 
Roger identified Edgewater's cardiologist, Andrew Cubria, as another major player in the scheme. He'll take care of you. At first, they didn't hear Peter Rogan on these tapes, but they did hear Roger talking about Peter. Well, if Rob's only sending over 10 patients, Rogan's going to ask what the hell's going on. Rogan's going to be looking at the fact that 25 patients got sent over, but only eight were admitted. So there's absolutely no money in it for the hospital. The FBI learned that Peter pressured Roger to maintain and increase the number of patients admitted to Edgewater. This was one of his roles, to make sure that these admission numbers stayed high. When the numbers went down, Roger would tell his assistant, Peter's pissed, the census is low. I have to call the heavy hitters. The heavy hitters were the doctors that brought in, admitted, or had patients come in for procedures. If doctors' numbers fell behind, he would remind them that they had to, to get their admissions up. The process of calling them was known as dialing for dollars. Roger kept a very close watch on the number of admissions that these doctors generated because this money was dependent upon a certain number of admissions per month. And Roger literally kept track of those on at least a weekly basis. As the FBI pieced together what was happening, much of Edgewater's medical staff sensed that something wasn't right. The nurses knew patients were coming in with diagnoses that had nothing to do with the tests that were being done. I started telling my family, my friends, things are happening here, it's not right. And I honestly did not know what to do. You do go to your supervisors, you're given vague answers. It almost went on deaf ears all the time, like, why aren't you doing something? I had reported nurses stealing drugs and I was told by a supervisor, don't cause problems or you can get fired. After that, I was just like, you know, I'm gonna just do my job and do the best I can. As young nurse managers, we always spoke up for the patients. And when we'd report it, nothing was done. Nothing was done because hospital management was in on the fraud scheme. Roger Eman, he seemed like the guy that wouldn't be involved, but the truth is he ran it all. He was the puppet to Peter Rogan, but he was the one putting it all into play. When you have a group of bad apples, you start pulling in good apples and making them bad. So it's what can happen if you're not careful. While most of us had an impressive CD collection in the 1990s, the FBI, well, they had quite the collection of cassette tapes. They had over 900 tapes of secretly recorded conversations about the kickback scheme at Edgewater. These tapes gave the FBI leverage to get others in the scheme to cooperate. One of the first to flip was Dr. Rao, who was Edgewater's anesthesiologist. And we should mention that we did reach out to Dr. Rao for this podcast, and through his lawyer, he asked us not to contact him by any means. Dr. Rao's cooperation was crucial because he'd be able to record his meetings with Roger Eman and Peter Rogan. Every morning, Dr. Rao called Roger Eman with the names of patients he was admitting. But Rao went quiet for a few days after the FBI approached him. When Dr. Rao resumed his daily phone calls with Roger Eman, he first gave Roger's secretary information about a patient he was admitting, and then Roger got on the phone. I really miss talking to you. Roger told Rao that he missed talking to him and could use his help. Listen, the hospital census is low, and I'm hoping... The two met a few days later, and Roger offered Dr. Rao $15,000 to send 20 to 30 patients per month. And then 
in great detail, explained the scheme that was happening at Edgewater Hospital, words that would later be used against him. As Dr. Rao and the FBI listened, Roger explained that Edgewater sent out three bills to patients, but they never seriously attempted to collect the money. Edgewater doesn't collect the Medicare 20% deductible from some. Even though the patients were billed for the Medicare deductible, the hospital simply wrote that off as bad debt. And then patients were told to throw the bills in the trash. Just, just throw the notices in the trash can. They tell the patient that after they send three notices, they drop it. The reason so many patients agreed to be treated at Edgewater was because they didn't have to pay. They just write off the deductible. And what they were doing, Roger said? Which is illegal. And it didn't stop there. They tell the patient that after... He said Edgewater had been writing off the Medicare deductibles for five years now, and they never had a problem. As long as the auditors saw that they tried to collect the deductible, there wouldn't be an issue. Everybody goes to jail if you put that in writing. You can almost picture the FBI agents in a nearby truck high-fiving one another after hearing Roger Eamon indict himself. Roger then warned Dr. Rao... You gotta be careful. Not to talk about getting money for admitting patients. Because you just don't know what's in this room or on the phones. Edgewater Hospital's Patients for Kickback scheme started to unravel in 1998. That's when insurance companies started denying payments to many of Rao's patients. Since Dr. Rao sent a lot of patients who weren't actually sick, these patients would tell the attending physician they didn't know why they were there, or that another doctor told them to say they had chest pain. The insurance companies then denied payment on these claims. This meant the hospital was now losing money on a scheme that was supposed to make money. Peter Rogan was upset and told Roger Eamon to fix it. You have to make it clear. So Roger called Dr. Rao and told him to better coach the patients. I'm sending you to Edgewater Hospital. Here's why I'm sending you. Roger said he was at a meeting and some doctors questioned why some of these patients were being hospitalized and they wanted to know what was going on. I, I don't want some disgruntled employee to report that a lot of patients were being admitted who didn't know why they are here. Hospital staff also noticed a suspicious change in Dr. Rao. He kept asking people to repeat themselves and sometimes tried to put words in their mouths. During one phone call with Roger Eamon, Dr. Rao got even bolder and spoke more blatantly. He told Roger he was sending in two patients who would complain of chest pain. After Roger said that all these patients were complaining of chest pain, Rao responded, You said that chest pain is good, right? Roger said, yeah, but... They can't show up and say they don't have chest pain. You can't ask patients to be actors and fake problems. Then Rao went rogue. Just remember, Roger, you have to pay for these admissions just like we agreed. Roger shot back. Don't say that. Edgewater pays you to provide anesthesia service. And told him to be more careful. Man, you gotta be careful what you say. And before hanging up, Roger said, You scare me, Rao. You scare me, man. With Rao's suspicious behavior, insurance companies denying payments on his patients, and hospital staff complaining about Rao's anesthesia work, things had hit a breaking point. Peter Rogan had enough and pulled the plug on Dr. Rao's contract. Rao was upset and demanded a meeting with Peter, but Peter didn't return his calls. Weeks dragged on and still no meeting. Rao had to pay his recruiters and Edgewater still owed him money, so he kept insisting on a meeting with Peter. Peter found Rao's persistence to be odd and told Roger he smelled a rat. When Peter finally agreed to meet with Rao, he told Roger that he'd be on his guard at this meeting. His instincts were spot on, because Dr. Rao arrived 
wearing a wire. There were simultaneous investigations going on. The FBI had a bunch of people wired up in a separate investigation that actually led them to the Edgewater case. We began to see the same type of pattern occurring at Edgewater. We're going to let you know what happened and how they managed to record more than 900 tapes of conversations. We'll also share which Edgewater doctor Peter Rogan believed would never wear a wire, but he actually did. It's on this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon. For just $10 a month, you can get access to bonus content like that. Just go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. Dr. Rao's persistence to meet with Peter Rogan finally paid off in August 1998. Rao and another doctor in the scheme met in Peter Rogan's office. The three spent the better part of an hour discussing why Peter canceled Rao's $15,000 a month contract. And since Rao was wired up, the feds could hear what was happening. Now, when you're running a fraud scheme, rule number one is you don't talk about it. Instead, you speak in code, which the major players did. They'd talk about sending 10 flowers or reviewing 10 charts, but they never actually verbalized that they sent 10 fraudulent patients to the hospital. Dr. Rao walked into Peter Rogan's office and immediately broke rule number one. He told Peter, Listen, Edgewater still owes me two checks from one of my contracts and he needed that money to pay another doctor for sending patients to Edgewater. And then came a warning. If this guy doesn't get paid, he just might call certain people, you know, like the authorities, and he's gonna talk, and he's gonna say that Edgewater still owes him two checks for sending patients. Peter exploded. Edgewater doesn't pay for patients, never has. And denied any involvement in the patient referral scheme. And then threatened Dr. Rao. If you want to keep up this line of questioning, I'll make sure justice is served. The feds hoped this meeting would provide the smoking gun they needed. But instead, Peter Rogan managed to say all the right things. That swing and a miss was a setback to the FBI's investigation. But now they had a bigger problem some serious new allegations rolled in about Dr. Andrew Cabrilla. Dr. Cabrilla, he was a cardiologist at Edgewater who performed heart-related procedures, cardiac catheterizations, and angioplasties. FBI agent Sherry Kuhn discovered that hundreds of patients ended up in the hands of Dr. Cabrilla and that he was performing invasive heart procedures on many of them, whether they needed them or not. The FBI began investigating Cabrilla after complaints were received regarding the number of cardiac catheterizations that he was performing, and that a significant number of those might have been unnecessary. As the FBI dug in, they learned he had performed hundreds of cardiac catheterizations on patients who didn't need them, and two of those procedures resulted in the patient's death. That gamble that Edgewater Hospital took by admitting patients who didn't need to be there and doing procedures on them they didn't need backfired. It created this even greater urgency in trying to complete our investigation out of concern that another person could die under his care.
next time on If the Walls Could Talk. Edgewater was having doctors tell people who didn't need these angioplasties that they needed angioplasties. There were just far too many of these procedures being performed. And that was Dr. Cabria. Cabria killed two persons just for an angiogram and an angioplasty. I never thought he would actually do things to kill patients. Four physicians brought the goddamn hospital down to the ground. Learn more on our website, ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers from Marty Bender read for Roger Eamon, Bob Reef read for Dr. Rao, Phil Minicki read for Peter Rogan, Eric Gans read for Dr. McClellan, Melissa Dever was the secretary, Chris Rice was the caller. Sound effects from freesoundeffects.com, freesfx.co.uk, and zapsplat.com. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Subterranean Howl by Elephant, Tangled by Emmett Fenn, Let It Me by Jeremy Black, Breathing Down My Neck by Alex Kashkin, Tension Pulse by Lynn Music, and Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Belichenko are all used under license through NeoSound. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.